God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 82, which along with Psalm 81 of the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, September the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Esther in chapter 6 today, the first 14 verses there. Over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, the first 13 verses of that chapter, and in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. So remember what we've gone through so far with uh, Esther is is that there's decree that's been put out by the king at the um, suggestion and the behest of um, Haman that all the Jews throughout the kingdom, which was 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India, would be put to death simply for being Jewish because it was suggested by Haman that these people lived among his people, but they didn't follow the rules and the laws and they didn't respect him as king because they had their own king who was their God. So he has agreed to do this, and now Esther, the queen, who's Jewish, has had one banquet at which only the king and uh, Haman attended. And on the way out of that, Haman's feeling really good, and then except Mordecai the Jew won't worship him, won't treat him with the respect that he feels is his due, and so he can't abide that. So even though he set it up so that all the Jews in the kingdom are going to be killed, he can't abide for Mordecai to live one day longer, so he's going to overplay his hand. And his family has encouraged him, including his wife, to build a gallows and then go to the king and have Mordecai put to death because of that. And Haman says, yep, that sounds great. But just like always, Satan overplays his hand, and that's exactly what's going to happen in this situation. So on that night, because they're going to have another banquet the next day only for the king and Haman, on the next that night the king couldn't sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him <clears throat> said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? In other words, who's around right now? I need to ask somebody for an opinion. So Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palaces to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks it's himself. Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." got a little bit of an ego, doesn't he? A lot of pride here. So the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. 
uh, not what he expected at all. He's come in here wanting to put Mordecai to death, and instead the king's going to honor him. I guess probably this suggestion is going to have to wait for another day. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman returned to his house, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. In other words, what they're saying is is that it sounds like you're completely out of luck here. It's, it sounds like this is going to go actually badly for you. This is We, we haven't hit the bottom yet. There, there's going to be worse to happen. And so they're speaking prophetically because it's like they're looking and saying, God's apparently on that man's side. And man, you're in the wrong place. So again, overplayed his hand. He just couldn't let it be, right? I mean, he had a choice. He could have said, you know what, let's just wait. It's all going to get taken care of anyway. The king's already got an edict that all the Jews are going to have to die. But no, he had to let this one man wreck his life. He couldn't just overlook it, couldn't just move on with his life. Nope, he had to do something about it. And so what he ends up with is, uh uh-oh, I'm the one walking through the streets, leading the horse with royal robes on Mordecai, saying this is what needs to be done for the man the king honors, and it was all my idea. So we're going to see another overplaying of the hand in the gospel today. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He'd just been baptized and led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, as you would be if you hadn't eaten for 40 days. The devil said to him, If if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Hey, you have the power, right? If that's who you really are, if you're the Son of God. I'm not convinced. I don't know. Do you know? Are you sure? Presume upon that relationship. You can do what you want, right? You got the power to do this. And Jesus answered him, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's not all about power. It's not all about the exercise of power. It's about listening. It's about responding not to your prompting him to do what seems right, because he hadn't eaten in 40 days, It's not up to you to determine the course of the next thing. And Jesus is going to be obedient even in this, even in this moment, even in his own hour of need. And that's going to come back and become a really important thing. These temptations play themselves out multiple times. They just play themselves out in different ways over time. Here, it's going to be in front of Satan only, and he's going to come directly at Jesus, whereas later, he's going to use people to do it. And that's the reason Jesus has to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan, because he's offering him one of these temptations. But the first one seems pretty innocuous. Turn one of these stones into bread. That'll be all right. You got the power. You have the ability. You have the need. Go ahead. It's the same kind of temptation that's posed to Eve in the garden. Presume upon your relationship. If you're the son of God, then surely you have the power to do this. 
you will not surely die. Go ahead. You have a need. There's no reason not to do it, right? Because what could it hurt? Here, it's the same thing. And the devil took him up then after Jesus swatted that one out. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I'll give all this authority in their glory. For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. So he's recognizing here that that Jesus has extraordinary authority, and he doesn't want him to complete the mission that he's been given. And so he wants to tempt him with power, with authority, with the ability to rule, rather than to be a servant. And so Jesus answered, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, the, the, the offer of the kingdoms is one thing, but it's the condition that's the overreach, right? So I have all these things in my hand. I can do anything that I want with them, but I, but the only, and I'll give them to you. I'll give you the authority over these things. You'll be under me, obviously. I'll give you the authority over these things, but there's a condition, and the condition is you have to bow down and worship me. Well, that's a bridge too far. no. No, is the answer to that. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All these responses Jesus gives comes from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, hey, try it. See what happens presume upon that relationship and presume upon God's promises so throw yourselves down this to me is very similar to what the the people who do the the snake handling and all and drinking poison and stuff do i don't know how they don't see this if the passage in mark is actually legitimate and that's a question because it doesn't show up in any really old manuscripts. It doesn't come in until about the second century. Now, now Jesus is told, he, he says to him, you, I've given you authority to do these things. That's not just in, in the last chapter of Mark, but the place where it's about the snakes and this poison and stuff, that's only in Mark's gospel. And as I said, it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And when it does show up, then there are these stars around it, essentially, that said, we don't know where this came from. This is new. We've never seen this before. So, what they do then, just because you have authority to do something, doesn't mean it's a commandment to take them up. No, I'm going to protect you against their harm, but it's not a commandment to tempt God by playing with snakes. That's the, that, it's just, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Never have, never will. And, and it's exactly Jesus' answer. It's it, don't put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In other words, he wasn't done by any stretch of the imagination. There was not going to be a direct frontal assault again. The Spirit drove him out there to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and Satan overplayed his hand in these temptations. And the the interesting thing at some level about that is is that it seems that the the Spirit took him out there, led him out there, so that the devil wouldn't have a choice. In the same kind of way with Job, right? So he didn't have a choice. He was baited into this encounter. But he overplays his hand in it, and he also tips his hand. He only has limited kinds of opportunities to tempt us, right? And so he has limited ways to tempt Jesus. And so the the ways that he tempts are always typically the same, right? Presume. Presume upon that relationship. Go ahead and test God. 
do these things because God said he protects you, right? I mean, he, he said that he, you'd be good. And then that can be made into a principle of, well, the health and wealth gospel. So then you, you take great risks, and then if they don't work out, you blame God. Because, well, he promised, didn't he? That's what the preacher told me, was that God promised me that I'd be prosperous if I did all the right things, if I didn't sin, and if I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and took him into my heart, then everything would go well for me, and I'd be a wealthy man. Everything would go well. But it didn't, and that's God's fault. No, it's the preacher's fault, because God didn't promise that. (laughs) He promised he would care for us. And so it's always about presuming on some promise of God that we're never intended to presume upon. We're intended to trust him that if we're in a certain situation that he will protect us, guide us, give us wisdom, let us get through those situations, but it doesn't promise anywhere that we're not going to be harmed. We will all die. We will all suffer. That That's just part of being human. So here, that Satan overplays his hand, and like I said, he has these limited ways in which he's going to tempt, and you can see these again and again and again. Through here, you can see in the first one about the food, you can see the same situation where Jesus feeds the people in John 6, and then the next day they come and they, they say, hey, do that again. If you want us to believe that's who you are, do it again. It's the same temptation. It's exactly the same thing. To you, I'll give all authority and glory. To, you can have the kingdoms. Well, there were certainly, there were places where they wanted to make Jesus king, including Palm Sunday. But that wasn't the mission. And so it was an attempt to deviate from the mission of God. And, and nope, you can have these kingdoms, you can have them without a cross. And that was exactly what Peter offered to Jesus when Jesus said he was going to be lifted up and, and uh, killed and die on the cross. Peter said, no, 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 uh-uh, that ain't how it works. I know better than that. I've read the book. I know that. And then here it comes down to throw yourself down off the cross. If you're the son of God, come down off that cross. No. So it's, it's the same basic temptations, the same basic presumptions that it goes on and on and on. In the book of Acts, um, again, what we see is, is it's going to be a problem for him there because he's, he, Paul is going to run into the Jews again, and they're, they're not going to want anything to do with him. They want, they want to run him out. So it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where where Apollos had been before he learned fully the way. There, at Ephesus, he found some disciples. And he must have seen something missing in these disciples, because he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were believed? And they said, no, we didn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. So these must have been people who were converted under Apollos' ministry prior to Apollos getting a more accurate understanding of the way, because Apollos only understood the baptism of John until Priscilla and Aquila explained everything else to him, and then he became even more powerful. But these people must have come under his influence, because they said, we've not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. There's two things that happen here, right? So, so one thing is they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that their baptism was, was for salvation, 
it wasn't for the preparation for Jesus, which is the baptism of John, which is preparation for Jesus. Now that they've believed, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. It's a twofold thing. They weren't baptized and come up out of the water speaking in tongues and prophesying. No, it's when Paul lays his hands on them. So he obviously prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So he, it's a two-part thing. And so now it's, the Spirit has been poured out in them and released through them. So that's when they become truly disciples is now they've been empowered by the Spirit, Paul having laid hands on them and prayed for them, that they received that Spirit. It doesn't mean that the sign of receiving the Spirit is speaking in tongues. That is not the sign of having received the Spirit. No, it's the Spirit being unleashed in you and through you so that you have wisdom and knowledge and that there's transformation beginning with the renewing of your mind. And so that's where everything begins. But these guys, they had already been baptized in John, into John's baptism, which is the repentance and preparation for the coming of Messiah. Now they're told the fullness of the message that Jesus has come, that <clears throat> he has been resurrected from the dead, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on God's people. And so they didn't even know about it. That can actually describe the vast majority of Christians in the United States right now, is, is that they've heard of the Holy Spirit, but that's all. It's, it's critical that, that believers begin to be filled with and live from the power of the Holy Spirit. If, if the kingdom is going to advance, it's only going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be by clever argument. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that, that's doing things in people and through people. So Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months, that's quite a long time, right, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul is literally there teaching every single day in the hall of Tyrannus, and we assume that's the person who owned the hall, not a god that was over that it's it we assume that it's something that this guy owned and so he stayed there for two years so that all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord both jews and greeks so it sounds like ephesus was an important place let's let's start there so but what he's what we're told is all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord both jews and greeks so people must have been coming to ephesus and going and hearing Paul teach and preach and reason through the scriptures there in this place. The, the impact of that ministry would have been carried back then all over the region uh, that where these people would have come. They would have gotten raised up, and then they would have gone out and gone back to their homes. And then from there, a great many churches would have come forward of those who had been prepared by Paul here at the Hall of Tyrannus. So these guys overstepped, again, in all three lessons, you see the same thing. They, they overreached. They decided to make life miserable for Paul, and Paul said, nope, the Lord called me here. I've got a place. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to teach. And so we assume Paul rented this place, but we don't know. It's possible that it could have been just provided for him and to him. But for two years, Paul taught, and what what Luke says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Huge, huge impact. Largely 
because they drove him out of the synagogue in a place they never would have gone, and instead they forced him into a public place. And from that public place, then all people can come and hear the word all the time. He overreaches. We just have to be patient and see the overreach and then react.